Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm shaping a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thanks to all y'all who shared ideas with me about last week's episode with the Washington Post's finest, Sylvia Foster-Frau. Pretty sure my favorite DM came from Alejandra, who had this brilliant idea, which I might as well confess here, I wish I would have thought of it myself. She told me that I should connect Sylvia with Nikki Acero from the Step Up Women's Network. If you've been listening, Nikki, Nikki was my guest on the first episode of this year's season of the podcast. Now, both Nikki and Sylvia are these like wise, empathic, brilliant women who used to be my students. So maybe I should connect them. Maybe you're right. Just makes sense. So thanks, Alejandra, for the suggestion and for your kind words. And drum roll, please. giving myself a drum roll. Why not? Thanks for becoming a patron of the podcast. I'm honored. Really, I am. I'm not just saying that. And please, keep the suggestions coming. And if you out there, if you've been listening to the podcast, if you learn something, if you feel connected to these conversations, let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com slash for a living and see what you get for supporting the project. No pressure, promise. But for a couple bucks a month, you can help keep this podcast going strong, and you'll have the platform to make wise suggestions, just like Alejandra. So Sylvia, Nikki, if you're listening, y'all should meet. I'll send you both an email today, and Alejandra, I'll copy you in just for good measure. Now, speaking of inspiring women from diverse cultures doing awesome stuff, the sponsor of every episode this season is Brad Newman of Brasserie by CNC. Brad wants to show his support for restaurants in his neighborhood, and on this episode, Brad wants me to shine a light on the Indie Cafe. The Indie Cafe? Yep. The Indie Cafe. The Indie Cafe is a celebrated female-owned restaurant in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. And they've been crafting Thai and Japanese cuisine since 2004. And, fun fact, their logo? It's an octopus. I'm looking at it right here. It's pulled up on the website. That their octopus is emblematic of the many legs the diverse influences, the diverse techniques that they bring to their cuisine. So if you're listening to this, and if you're anywhere near Chicagoland, USA, head over to Indie Cafe on 5951 North Broadway Avenue, excite your palate, support women-owned businesses, and, 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 as always, trust that Brad Newman's recommendations are worth pursuing. They gotta be. He's Brad Newman. He knows what's up. Now, there's another recommendation I've been pursuing. This one isn't from Brad. A long time ago, like over a year ago, 
A friend and patron of the podcast, Carl Hauk, recommended that I find someone in the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like, like the support side of the music business. You know, sound engineers, lighting techs, uh, stage managers, tour bus drivers, you know, the, the family, the family. So on behalf of Carl, I had today's guest in mind for some time. But brother's always on the road. He's touring with bands. He's doing the work. But today, <laughs> today only, he's mine, all mine. Max Vick is a booking agent for heavy metal and hard rock bands. He's based in beautiful Toronto, but he books concerts all over North America. He talks about how he conceptualizes a tour with a band, like how he makes deals with bands. And he also speaks rather candidly, actually, about how bands get paid for their road work and how he gets his cut. So for those of you out there, like me, who love nothing more than a banging show, you're definitely going to dig this conversation with Max Vick. Max Vick, welcome to For a Living. I'm excited to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. How do you describe what you do? I'm a booking agent, and we work with artists, bands, and primarily in my particular field of work, heavy metal and hard rock bands to plan concerts and tours. We work with promoters all across the world, but primarily North America. And what it means to set up a concert is we get in touch with the promoter. We say, all right, we want this city, this venue, this date. And then we kind of get into a negotiation about the deal and about how the artist wants to be paid, how much the artist wants to be paid, the nature of the deal, and how that deal breaks down should this show be successful, how that deal breaks down should the show be unsuccessful. Every minute detail of setting up a artist's either one-off show or tour we have our hands on. We work with a bunch of partners in terms of logistics in terms of getting hospitality set up in terms of transportation and we're kind of the quarterback of the entire thing in liaison with management and liaising with the artists in terms of how they want to execute whatever vision they have for their tour or their concert max i can't wait to get into all of that stuff but before we do I have to ask you how you got on this path because it's it's kind of unique. I have to say, I've never met a booking agent in my life. You're the first. How'd you get on the path? So I come from the hardcore punk rock world. And I started out with a band and I started out wanting to see concerts in my hometown. I'm from Burlington, Vermont. And I was going to shows, seeing bands playing in youth centers and 150 capacity rooms. The, the, the culture there is, is do it yourself. So it's DIY. You get in touch with a band or a band gets in touch with you. If you're someone who's known in that, in, you know, they want to come play Burlington on a Thursday on their way to Montreal or on their way down from Montreal going to New York. 
And your 16-year-old me was like, oh, I'll put on your show and I'll pay you 100 bucks or I'll pay you 60 bucks or I'll pay you whatever the door is. And it moved from there. So first my band put out some music. It wasn't particularly good. Didn't really matter. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to go see my friends. And I, I lived in Germany for a year. And then I went back home to Burlington and kind of got back and got a little bit more serious with the band. And I thought, well, I want to go see my friends in Germany. So why not book a tour of Europe? Right. As everyone in my band got out of high school all at the same time. And the year that I graduated from high school, I booked a, I want to say like 16 to 20 date tour of Europe. And that was all through a network of other crappy bands that have also <laughs> played, you know, 300 capacity spaces, yeah. youth hostels, uh, you know, the, the squats, things like that. And so that was the first tour that I ever booked was for my band in in Europe because, again, I wanted to go back and see my friends and I wanted to just say that I did it because it wasn't something that was that a lot of other bands from the scene that I was in were doing. But it was something that some of them were doing. And so I had friends who kind of had the the rule book and the, and the play, literally a, an Excel sheet of, you know, if you want to go play in Mannheim, Germany, here's who you send an email to. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it started out like that. I had, we, there was another band from my, from our area and they had been over there a lot. I had actually seen them when I was living in Germany. I hitchhiked from Berlin <laughs> to Nuremberg. I got there and my friends from Vermont were there and there were people there playing a concert. You know, there was no stage. There was barely a PA and people were having a fantastic time. It was like 10 euros to get in and it was possible. The The, the band played the show, sold merch, made friends, and then they were off to the next show. And it was, it was a tour. There was no buses. There was no trucks. There was no arena. There was no ticket master fees. There was no anything. It was just... <laughs> Yeah, it was just show up, play with people who half of them are people that you know, and you might stay with that night. And then you're off to the next city. And that made a really big impression on me. And it as I went back to Vermont, that was all I wanted to do. It was I, I make a, a joke a lot saying that music really ruined my life. <laughs> because I used to have aspirations. I used to, I used to, I used to play chess. I used to BMX bike. I used to play baseball and none of that. I I did none of that afterwards. I was totally hooked. I wanted to play music. I wanted to tour and I wanted to be out in the world in a, in a van playing to, at that point, all I cared about was just actually playing the show with, with my friends. And so that's how I came to do this. And and I've been doing it. Yeah, I was booking shows at 16, booking tours at 18, and I'm 28, about to turn 29 now. So I have a 10 to 12 years of experience working in the music industry in a semi-professional to professional manner. That's awesome, man. I love the narrative. I love the way you craft it. And I love that you you went for it, right? You found the thing that you love. And at some moment, you're like, I have to do this. Everything else be damned. I have to do it. And as I listen to myself talk, it dawns on me, I probably have to ask you, was there a moment where you're like, this is it. I I have to do this. Everything else be damned. 
I'm gonna let music, you know, <laughs> ruin, ruin my, my life. life. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a, there were a few moments. Yeah, I would say the moment that I saw my friend's band get a reaction at a festival in the Czech Republic. I think there may have been 800 people on the stage with them singing the words to a song that I have only ever, I think maybe 40 people in the United States know. Uh And, and all these, you know, Europeans are, are uh, singing every word to the bridge of the song on the stage with them in at a festival called fluff fest in the Czech Republic. Um, that was probably one of the moments that I said, all right, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to do that. I want to sing in this, I want to sing in a band and I want to go on tour and do this. And again, the, the rest of my life was kind of like less, very much less important in that moment. Yeah. But I, I actually do have a moment when I had to decide if I wanted to do this as a career in a very, in a very specific way. Not only did I start booking shows and booking tours, I was also a tour manager. I got offered a tour a week after I had confirmed two weeks of of work at a, a university hospital that I was working at. And I had to turn to my manager and say, hey, I got this offer. Uh, I'm going to be gone for a month and a half tour managing on a, on a 500 cap club tour. Uh, and I know that I just confirmed, you know, two weeks with you. Is that going to be okay? And my manager said, "No, <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. If if you if you go and do this, um, I, I have to fire you." He he was pretty diplomatic about it, but he said, "You just confirmed, you know, you just confirmed all these dates with me. I don't have anyone else to cover you, and if you do this, I can't continue to work with you." And he was already sick of my shit because I had <laughs> my priorities were not at a hospital. Yeah. And so I think it was more of a, a way of just kind of him giving an ultimatum be like, if you're going to go and do these two things, you have to stop working here. Yeah. And I, it took me about a day to decide, yeah, I'm going to go do that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sorry, everybody. Yeah. So that was a decisive moment in my life where <laughs> Sounds like I, it. I had to, yeah, I had the, I had the, I, I literally had someone say you go left or go right. Yeah. And I, and it took me two seconds to say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and tour manage this band. I'm going to make a living doing this now because there was, there was no other real option. I, I make a joke quite a bit where uh, every now and again, somebody from my industry will stop being a booking agent. And me and three other booking agents will go, what What else could you do? There's nothing else I could do. There's nothing yeah. else in this world that I could possibly do besides working in music somehow. I am completely useless at almost everything else. And somehow <laughs> I have a brain worm that you have to have to do this job that makes it so I uh, have the ability to, to book tours and to keep all this you know nonsense in my head. So, yeah. Hey, man, do me a favor. Uh, send a link of this podcast to the dude who canned you at the hospital and give him a little thank you note. Maybe send him some flowers. He kind of made the decision for you in a way, didn't he? He did. And I think, I, I think about, I think about him quite a bit because yeah. he did give me the ultimatum and he said, get, you know, get, get your butt out the door. And yeah, I think again, it was partially because he was just sick of me and partially because I think he knew what the answer was going to be. 
and maybe he thought it was going to be a good idea. In the end, it all worked out. So yeah, thank you, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's worked out. Now, I was interested in the word that you used when you described what you do, this notion of conceptualizing. So I really want to know what goes into conceptualizing a tour with a band. Like when you and the band sit down to, to create a shared vision for a tour, what are the logistical matters you discuss? But also I'm interested in the hopes and the fears that you and the band discuss. Sure. So it really depends on where the band is at in their career. So I'll give you, I guess, three models that we could look at. Again, we're going to look at it through the heavy, heavy metal and hard rock lens of the world. Um, there's a few different things you do if you're working in, say, hip hop, or if you're working in uh, the pop sphere where you need to look at something like radio play and uh, vi viral hits quite a bit more than I have to. I'm very lucky that I don't need to worry about like TikTok or what's what's popping on the charts. I don't, I don't need to worry about that so much. So for our listeners, yeah. can we assume that most of our conversation today will focus on the hard rock and metal sphere? Yes. Okay. My clients work in that sphere, hard rock, metal, and hardcore punk, which I call it subculture music. It's, it's, it's music that runs parallel to the mainstream of what you'd hear on the radio, but those lines are getting more and more blurry as we progress in how the public at large consumes media. So, Okay, so before we dive too far into that, you were saying that the first model is bands that are trying to break in. Mm -hmm. What's the second model? So the second model would be a band that's established themselves as a band that can sell some tickets, has a fan base, and has been around for a while. So some a band that might be playing at your local 750 to 1500 cap club. That band's going to have different concerns, wants, and needs, and also priorities than a band who's just getting out on the road and trying to establish themselves as uh, worth working with and also worth worth tickets to be to be very uh, cutthroat about it, I guess. Yeah. And then there's bands who are in the arenas and theaters. Those bands have a very, you know, those bands have very different priorities and those bands have a much larger infrastructure than a band who's just going out to play clubs. So I would break it down like bands who are in DIY spaces and clubs to bands that are in uh, theaters and ballrooms to bands that are in amphitheaters and arenas. All, all of those groups have vastly different needs, vastly different infrastructures, vastly different organizations. And vastly different things that push and pull what they need to do. So we have the luxury to work with all three of those types of bands. And uh, it's, 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 it's a totally different approach for all of them. But in the end, what you want is to execute what the band needs and also what you think the band needs in terms of, uh, again, how to conceptualize a tour, how to conceptualize a strategy surrounding an album release or an EP release or a new piece of media the band is focusing on. Um, we call that a cycle. So an album cycle includes 
a number of tours, a number of festival appearances, and a number of any any number of uh, live appearances that we could be asked to be involved in setting up. So I'd actually be interested in hearing about bands at all three levels. But for the sake of time and perhaps efficiency, let's shoot straight down the middle. Let's take this second track band that you referred to. Mm-hmm. A band that's not just breaking in, but a band that's not quite playing arenas yet. What you described as an established band. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to kind of paint a picture for me of you and that band sitting down at a table trying to conceptualize the tour, trying to create a shared vision for a tour. What are the types of things that you talk about with them? So generally a band of that nature is going to have a manager. And if the manager is the sole contact between myself and the band, I'm going to sit down with the manager of the band And I'm going to ask them what their goals are. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll say that the band has a new album out. It comes out March 5th. And around that album, the band wants to play markets, cities, that they haven't been to on the new album. And usually we'll start with what we call A markets. So an A market, New York City, LA, Chicago, Atlanta, Portland, Seattle, Boston. So the first thing you do, you got a new record, go play the A markets, go play big population areas. You know, the manager will come sit down and say, hey, we want to target A markets on this new release. We got to get the new songs out. We want to really showcase the differences and the the growth of the band since the new release. We want to play 1,500 to 2,500 capacity venues. We either want to work with a, a one promoter on all of the shows. We want to work with individual local promoters on each city. The band wants to make X amount of money per show. The band wants to price their tickets within this range. The band wants to play rooms that either are seated or GA, meaning standing room only. And the band wants to take out two to three other bands at the specific level. Sometimes the bands already knows what kind of bands or the band they want to take out as supports. And other times they they'll come to us and say, Hey, who do you got? Who are some growing bands that could support us on our upcoming tour? Hmm. So that's the, that's the start of the conversation. Yeah. Let me ask a quick question about that. About what percent of the time, when you're dealing with a manager, do you listen closely to what the manager says? You hear them through and through, and you're like, yep, sounds good. All of that makes sense. All of this is doable. Let me get back to you. I think I can accomplish 95% of what you want. And what percentage of the time, (laughs) by contrast, are you like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know why this is their manager. They there's no way that this band can do what their manager's asking me to do for them. Our role as, as booking agents is to advise using all the knowledge that we have available to us and all of the resources that we have available to us to help the band achieve what they want to. And if that means tempering expectations a little bit, sometimes we do it. Yeah, And we explain, you know, the, the good part about working with a manager is that you don't need to tell the artist that 
you know, in Philadelphia, we really are only worth about a thousand tickets. In LA, you're worth three thousand, but in Philadelphia, it's a thousand tickets. Yeah, and it's and and that's and that's what we got to be doing. So we come across that here and there, but for the most part, bands rely on data more and more, and they understand that you know they don't want they don't want to shoot for the stars and play at a half full house, and so they'll listen when we say you know what we got to do we got to do the small room there, or or in this place we actually have to do the really small room there and it's going to be a better show because it's a better promoter and it's a better look for what you do so luckily we're very blessed to work with some really 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 professional and smart people in terms of the management partnerships that we do have it's it's not often that there's someone who comes across my desk or, or, or my business partner's desk that we find ourselves working with someone who's just completely unreasonable or has no scope or understanding of what's realistic for a band. That's a relief to hear. Yeah. Yeah. There are some managers who are ambitious. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. Who are ambitious. And that's great because the ones who are ambitious are usually meticulous and also very understanding that they need to put in the work to do it. But it's a nice way to put this. The ones who are unrealistic and unwavering in their delusions are not managers (laughs) who get very far or are managers that we tend to work with. We're really selective about our partners and we try to make it a good experience to, to, you know, I want to look forward in my day to who I'm working with. And yeah. if it's a situation where my expectations and ability to deliver for the band is pretty far apart from what the band and the management and their team needs or wants and what I can get for them, it's far apart from that. We tend not to continue to work together. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. I'm not always the best fit for every single band and uh it's 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 not a, it's not a fun time when when you say you know this is what's going to be realistic and they say no 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 that's not what it is and and if, if you have an adversarial relationship with a band you're not going to find yourself in business with them for that long i i bet that's true i bet that's true and i like the way that you look at it you're trying to find a consensus you're really trying to work with people you're trying to work yes. for them you're trying to work with them and this is what i know of you this is the type of person you are small question just because i want to make sure that i'm clear you're working with managers most of the time all of the time 90 percent of the time how often are you working with bands directly and is that a totally different experience work with managers, I would say 65% of the time. It's not that different of an experience because the person who gets this far managing a band or, or being the mouthpiece and the, the source of authority for a band that is a working and functional band, the difference between that person and a manager who works with multiple bands or is hired by a band to work with them is not terribly different because you need to be such a specific type of individual to be successful at that. So if it's the bassist of the band who is the primary contact and is in charge of strategy for the band, that's a manager. He just happens to play bass 
it within the band. And so it's not, it's not as if I can't tell them the same things that I would tell a manager. Yeah, for sure. Now, you and the manager, whether or not that person is the bassist in the band, you're sitting down at a table, you're on a Zoom call, and you have to compose a deal with this band that you represent. What are the, the moving pieces in this deal, and which of those pieces tend to be hardest to negotiate? The negotiations that I have with a promoter on the deal points of a show start with what we call the front end money. And what that is, is how much money the band is either guaranteed or the percentage of the money that the band will be taking from the door. So there's three types of deals that we work in in the music industry. There's other types of deals that can be worked out. But in my line of work, primarily, I work in um, percentage deals. I work in plus deals. And I work in versus deals. The most simple is the percentage deal, which is you get 65% of the door or 65% of the gross from dollar one, meaning there's no expenses deducted from that split. And that's what the bank gets paid at the end of the night. You sold 250 tickets on a $20 ticket. You get 65% of the money at the end of the night. Take that. That's the bank gets paid. Those deals are rare and those deals tend to only exist at the very, I would say the very, the, the low end of the, of the industry. And in some, for some very, very, very successful artists, the very high end of the industry. It's simple. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense though. And then there's something called a, a plus deal, which is a flat fee to start so the band is promised $10,000 to come play the, the Fillmore in Silver Springs. And there are some costs associated with playing that venue. There's advertising, hospitality, rent, labor costs. And once those costs are then met through ticket sales, there's a split after that. So it's plus 65% or plus 85% of the net box office receipts. So this, this is this is the, the music industry term for how much money you got after expenses from ticket sales. So if a band sells out the Fillmore and Silver Springs, they make the money on the front end, $10,000 we'll say. Okay. And then they cover expenses. The promoter makes a little bit of promoter profit. And then the promoter and the band split the rest of the money left over, generally 85% to the band, 15% to the promoter. And then we have something called a versus deal, which is a combination of a percentage deal and a flat deal, flat deal being just the money on the front end, which is the band takes, again, $10,000, the Fillmore and Silver Springs versus 65% of the net box office receipts. So they're gonna get either $10,000 or 65% of the money that came in at the door, less the expenses of playing the show, whatever's greater. So that's the start of where, uh, of where we begin to negotiate. So the band has a certain amount of money they need per show 
or an average fee they need to cover for their costs, for their crew, for their transportation, for their backline, the, the instruments that they play and the gear they need to be using for any kind of production that they have. And that goes into what I need to know from the from the management side of things as to how much you know money they need per show, how much money they think they're worth in that market. And um, I go to the promoter, I say, I want this. And I want these ticket prices to achieve that. I want $500 in hospitality for catering, or I want more than that. Sometimes we have to discuss something called a merch cut, which is uh, very, very uh, hot in, in the music industry right now, because the idea of a merch cut is, is a little bit antiquated at this point, but a merch cut is um, how much money you give to the venue for the privilege to sell your merch in their house. Really? Yep. Ugh. We can get it. Oh, it's it's filthy. Um, <laughs> we can we can get into that as well. I'd love to. I would love to have a dialogue about merch cuts. Yeah. But that's part of the negotiation. So what about booze? Th- this is awesome. So um, so generally, unless you are Jimmy Buffett, <laughs> the booze does not go into the equation. There are some bands who do very high per head alcohol sales. What that means is that every single person who buys a ticket to this show is going to be assumed to buy a certain amount of alcohol. And that's part of the arithmetic as to what the value of the band is, because in many ways, all your favorite bands are just uh, a a really great way to sell booze and a great way to sell (laughs) t-shirts. And a great way to sell parking and food and beverage. So dismal. It's, 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 you know, <laughs> it's very dismal. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Sammy Hager yeah. and and Jimmy Buffett, they'll get like a booze cut. Yes. But for ninety nine percent of other bands, they don't get a taste of the booze. No. So. There's something called the Jimmy Buffett deal. Wait, you weren't even <laughs> kidding. Is, it's legit the Jimmy no, Buffett deal. Not, no, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I no, no. love this. this. Thing. And and I might and I might be wrong. And and if and if there's any anybody who's you know in the industry listening to this, feel free to write in and, and correct me. But <laughs> I believe the Jimmy Buffett deal is 110 or 105 percent of the door. Oh wow. Yeah. Fucking parrot heads. Parrot heads, baby. So. If you have a crowd who really, really, really drinks and it's reliable every night, you have access to not streams of revenue, but you have access to more money that the promoter is willing to give you because they're going to make such a killing on the bar that night. So you get into this with a lot of country bands. Country fans really like to drink. Um, And so there are venues that I work with who will tell me, well, if you're a country band, I could give you 90% of the door. But since you're not, I can give you 80% of the door. It just just based on how much money they stand to make. And that's a and that's a big that's a big aspect of again what goes in the arithmetic of a show. So those are the deal point, those are those are the big deal points we work out. And again, the the larger the band, the kind of the more the more you have to look into the into the minor deal points like you have to scale tickets because some of the tickets are are on the floor of the of the of the arena. Some of the tickets are in the you know the three hundred section of the arena, way you know ten million feet from the stage. Yeah. But for the most part, again, in I, I think in Berlin at, at at Huxley's, you really have probably two types of tickets. You have general you know GA tickets that are bought in advance, and GA tickets that are bought day of show. So yeah, 
that's that's the start. Yeah. So look, like you, I'm a huge concert goer. I've been a concert junkie since I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. And some of the best times of my life have been at concerts. And I love telling stories about concerts. It's part of the reason I've been so excited to have you on the podcast. But like many concert goers, I am consistently shocked at the price of tickets. And I'm shocked on both sides. Sometimes I'm shocked, of course, at how expensive the tickets are. It's just ghastly and it it frustrates me to no end. But other times I'm shocked at how affordable tickets are. And it almost seems wrong. I guess I wonder what goes into the decision-making when pricing a ticket. Sure. As, you know, as booking agents, our job is to make the band money. So to the best of our ability, we're trying to make it so we don't price out their fan. We want to take into account the last price that a fan of a band paid for the band and pretty much what the market will bear for that band. I want a band to be affordable, but I also want the band to make a little bit more money every time they come through. Rising expenses on the road are, are severe, especially in, in this year. Buses are more expensive. Fuel is more expensive. It's more expensive to print merch. It's more expensive to, to pay crew on the road. And so the cost of living for these bands have, has gone up. And so within you know post-pandemic touring life, tickets have also gone up. If the band has the ability to charge more for tickets, they will. But they're sensitive to what their audience is going to pay. So when we scale tickets and when, when we say, okay, we're, we're booking a new tour, this tour is going to have this many bands, how much do we think this fan is comfortable paying in this time of year, in this venue, in this market? So it's, it's, it's very situational. In New York City, you're going to have people who are willing to pay more money than in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so the ticket is affected by that. In a, a dingier, older venue where tickets have traditionally been a certain cost, the tickets are going to stay in, in, in that you know lane. And we work with promoters to, to really feel out what the local market is comfortable paying for for, for a metal band, the promoter is it will say, okay, you know, the metal audience in this town can afford $25 to $32 tickets generally. And so we'll go with that. So that's that's how that gets scaled. But there's a lot going on with something called dynamic ticketing right now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a big part of it. And so if you've seen it, this caught some press from Bruce Springsteen. This caught some press from the Blink-182 tour that just got announced both Live Nation and AEG, who are the two largest concert promoters in the world, have introduced something called either platinum ticketing or dynamic ticketing. And what that is, is it's ticketing that responds to demand in a more robust way than than, than, than the promoter calling me and saying, oh, tickets are flying out the door and me going, all right, we're going to raise the ticket price to this because we don't actually do that. Now, promoters ask us, okay, how much do you want to put into platinum or how many dynamic tickets do you want? And sometimes artists aren't comfortable with it. Sometimes artists are very comfortable with it. Yeah. We'll say, okay, we'll put 
of the of the tickets for this show into platinum or into dynamic ticketing. And what that means is that those tickets will fluctuate based on demand, based on an algorithm. And that can lead to some pretty screwy ticket prices where if a if a ticket is super hot and there's no limit set on how expensive that ticket can be, you can have platinum tickets go up to however much people will pay for them. You know, that's, that's the, the raw truth of it is it might seem expensive, but somebody paid for it. Yeah. And if, and if no one's going to pay for it, it goes down and the public perception of it is terrible, but someone's still paying for it. You know, managers, promoters and agents, they're going to take that money. You know, where it's our, it's our job to provide for not just the band, but the band's team and the ecosystem around that band, which is something that people I think often don't really understand is that these bands, yes, they're compelled to make millions of dollars because that's what they're able to do. But also there's a small city around some of these bands, some of the, some of the really big bands that are, that you're seeing these massive ticket prices for take care of a staff that can be well over a hundred people. All of those people have families, all of those people work, for them all year round. And so the costs with running that band is like a small, it's a small company. A band like Metallica has so many arms of, of what they do that when they do come in and command such a high ticket price and command a high fee, it's not just for them. It's for the family around them who make the machine go. So there's that to think about as well. You know, again, boo! The millionaires are making more money, yeah. but at the same time, it's it's not just that. There's a there's a working class group of people surrounding all of these bands that make them what they are, and that's what the band needs to pay for, and it's expensive. Yeah, I hope you don't mind my asking, but since you're kind of talking right to it anyway, how do you, as a booking agent, get compensated? So, I have the most clear and concise deal in the music industry in, a, in an industry that in my opinion is very corrupt historically extremely <laughs> dirty and backstabby and, and, a, and, a, and not a not a, an industry that's known for being terribly uh full of integrity <laughs> a nice um, understatement yeah yeah just to say the least uh-huh. the way that booking agents get paid and this is in North America, it changes somewhat on what continent you're on, is we take a commission of 10% of the gross pay to the band before taxes, before their expenses, whatever the promoter paid them, we take 10% of that and that's it. And I love it because it is one-to-one. I got you this money. I take mine. You take the vast majority of it. Yeah. It's not a convoluted record deal. It's not a strange management deal where where we get pieces of the band's merch and their music sales. It is on live shows that I worked on. I get my cut. You get yours. And that's it. Love it. And something that I'm also very proud of, especially at my particular company, it's a handshake deal. We work with some of the biggest names in rock. And we don't have a contract with them. 
that's awesome, man. Uh, it, again, in a in a system that is is dirty as 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 any as any industry can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's square. It's it's square with my conscience. Love it. Yeah. So, speaking of kind of like the shady side of the business, hmm? I know that artists often bemoan getting hosed by venues, and part of your gig is to nip this garbage right at the bud. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you settle a show. Yeah. And like what can get in the way of a smooth settlement? So what can get in the way of a smooth settlement is sloppy numbers. If at the end of the night you're told, oh, we spent this much on advertising. And then we say, okay, well, show us the receipts of your, you know, we call it an advertising audit or a ticket audit. If we want to look at how the tickets were were sold and how many of each tier of ticketing were sold. And they go, oh, uh, I don't have receipts for, for, for my ad spend. That looks a little funny. And, and we work with some fantastic tour managers to call this stuff out. And again, this, we're, we're still working on the level of band in a, in a 1500 cap club. So it can come down to numbers that don't look exactly right or a promoter not honoring a contract we send contracts to promoters for each of these shows to ensure the band is paid in the way that we've all agreed that the band is paid. I got to be honest, it's really rare. If we have an issue with a promoter, we tend not to work with them again. And in my specific line of work and, and with my partners, we have our people and I send them a lot of shows um, throughout the year. We have over 130 acts that we work with. And if you want to work with us, you work with us straight up. And we keep the lights on in some of these venues. And so it's very rare that this happens, but if a band gets shorted, it's our job to go in and make sure that, you know, that, that, that gets remedied very quickly. The best way to describe it is it's our job to make sure they're not working with anybody who would do that in the first place. Mm. Good. I like that. And part of it is that the ecosystem of promoters is a much less of a wild west than it used to be. Again, Live Nation and AEG are, are partners who we work with quite a bit. Something that comes with the the more corporatized aspects of the industry now is uniform settlements uh, and reliability. So that's 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 a big deal. That's good to hear because I know like there are some venues in Chicago that were legendary for hosing performers, but I, I guess what you're saying makes sense right that along with the corporatization of the industry there are like kind of like weights and measures that are more standard and you don't see it as much as you saw it 20 let alone 50 years ago you don't see it in the same ways okay so the the ways that that promoters are kind of getting over on artists now is they have more expenses that might not be entirely real but there's kind of a soft handshake in the back about okay i understand your expenses are not going to be you know exact every night it's more of an average of what you what you need to cover this but you're going to pay my band more because i know that you know so so there's some knowledge there but every band is due a look at what they sold at the end of the night at every venue if you're a professional venue you should be able to present a full audit of the tickets sold, your expenses, how much you spent, and it should match up with, you know, roughly what your contract says. And that's 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 something that I think is relatively new if we're talking about the history of the music industry. Yeah. You know, 
And there's a downside to it too. We have less of an ability to negotiate because we work with some of these promoter groups who are more or less monopolies. There's nowhere else to go in that town. So you got to take their merch cut. So you got to, you know, accept that they say their house nut is $8,000 and you have to clear that before you hit any kind of back end. But it's our job to make sure that, you know, the artist gets paid. You know, if, if I feel like when we hit back end, it's not going to be fair, then then pay me first. Okay. You know, if we send an artist into an area they never played before or a, a promoter who I've never worked with, we just ask for a deposit. We say, send all the money now. And they're usually cool with that. If they want to work with us, yeah. All right. They'll have to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you, you and your team really do hold a lot of cards. I'm curious about something you mentioned a minute ago. You were talking about Live Nation and AEG. Now, I don't do a lot of research for this podcast, but you work for Artist Group International, which dubs itself as an independent booking agency. What does it mean exactly to, to be an independent booking agency in this space? Yeah, so what that means is that unlike other significantly larger agencies, we do not have shareholders. We do not have a board that requires the same kind of rigorous growth that some other agencies do. It's a much less corporate structure. There are three heads of the agency who are also agents themselves, as opposed to, say, a CEO. The president of the company who I work for spends most of, of her time booking million-dollar deals. You know, that's what makes her the president. Not it's not it's not the the management of the of the company, though she does a great job managing the company as well. It's a much smaller staff. Uh, we have about I would say thirty people for a 10, 10 to eleven agent, you know, roster of agents, and just the structure is is much more independent and much more old school than what you might find at a company like CAA, WME, or um, uh, UTA, who all have significantly larger footprints in terms of of their offices they have offices in la nashville new york we're just based out of new york and and what makes us independent is just is just we don't have the we we don't have the same kind of corporate structure and thus the same kind of uh growth that is demanded of those of those types of agencies and and the the culture is just significantly different now you're not in new york right no no i'm uh I'm, i'm i'm based out of montreal COVID allowed me to work much more remotely than, than I was prior to that. But even before that, I was working with um, my boss, whose uh, name is Nick Storch, and he was living in Toronto. His wife said, come live. We gotta go. I want to raise my kids in Canada. He asked the New York office and they said, yeah, sure. And so when I came to work for him, uh, he asked that I would come live in Toronto and, and work in the same office as he did. And then when the pandemic hit, he moved out to the country. And uh, I asked if I could move to Montreal, and he said, sure. But our offices and our administrative team is all based in New York. Montreal is such a great city. I'm curious how independent you are in this so-called independent agency. Like, you report to Nick, you have to go to New York a couple times a year, see the main office. Like, how independent are you in choosing with whom you work? Does your team uh, assign 
acts to you? Do they ask you to take on acts? Like how much freedom do you have to choose with which artists you work and what types of deals you make for and with them? So we're very lucky that within this independent agency, that culture is top down. It permeates through how we work. And so I work with Nick, who is the senior agent in my specific office. I am his junior agent. And we pretty much play by ourselves. There's no one who's asking us to work on any specific bands, There's no, which is something that you do deal with at larger agencies. We're tasked to be as independent as possible, go find talent, but that's about the only mandate that there is. Go find talent and go, you know, go produce and that'll justify your existence here if you do that. <laughs> but beyond that, we're left alone. We're very specific as to what we like to do and he and I work closely together to figure out what bands you want to work with. And there's, you know, there are some stipulating factors for for how that comes about. But in terms of, say, if we're being told by the office in New York to, to you know, work with a specific band, it's only because they think it's good and, and they think it might be something to work on. But it's not mandatory and it's definitely not a, a culture that is demanding of acting a certain way, signing a certain way, working with these promoters, working with not these promoters. It's very independent. You make your own fortune, and that's why I love it so much. It's they, for the most part, they leave you alone, but if you need some help, they'll give it to you. You know, so it's more of a, a mentorship relationship rather than, you know, one of, uh, of, of a boss putting down a mandate and saying, we need to do this. We're also in a lucky position where our office just keeps growing within the company, our, our acts keep growing. And so, we get left alone because we're good at what we do. That's also part of it. So you're in Montreal and you have this dossier of acts that are touring throughout North America, Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. And you work on, as I understand it, a lot of tours simultaneously. And I guess I just kind of wonder like, how you juggle all the tours that you're on some level responsible for and like how you prioritize all of the different tours. Yeah, sure. So at this current moment, I am responsible for about 25 tours. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and so, okay. So part of the way that we justify our existence at the company is we work in volume because again, if you, if you look it up, uh, artist group international's biggest clients are Billy Joel, Metallica, this past year, Motley Crue, Poison, the Strokes. And so because we lack those, you know, kind of marquee clients on that AAA biggest artists in the world level, we have to hustle with artists who do quite well, but aren't quite selling out stadiums. Again, to justify our existence, if you do 10 artists that are selling out 2,000 caps a night, that's pretty good. But part of that means that I have to work 25 tours at once. And the way that Nick and I will kind of divide labor is he's very, very good at interfacing with artists, interfacing with managers and on kind of global strategy for, for the artists that we work with. And then for the nuts and bolts aspects of everything in terms of setting up each individual show, working out the deal, that's where I come in. And so we're able to divide up our labor that way. 
How do you just keep it all in your head? You have 20, 25 acts on the road at any given time. It's, uh, frankly, it sounds mind-boggling. <laughs> well, we work in a touring spreadsheet to keep everything organized. I have a few different to-do lists and collaborative uh, workflow apps that help me stay organized. And part of it has to do with once the tour is confirmed, we pass it along to our very capable administrative staff who will contract and uh, take care of the tour accounting and also take care of getting bands their itineraries. And so we have um, a really fantastic group of people who work with us to do that stuff. And so once the actual tour routing is done, I get to pass it along and work on my next tour. And so that's a big aspect of it. Yeah. Um, the other aspect of it is that I'm a lunatic <laughs> and, <laughs> and got to make yourself useful. And part, and part of, part of this is I found that I was able to work, you know, work in the system effectively, Yeah. you know? So my, my desk looks like I, I launch missiles for NASA and, uh, <laughs> and I've, and I've found that, you know, we can, we can manage the workload because, we're nimble, we're agile, and we're obsessively, we're obsessive compulsively addicted to form and format. Okay. And because of that, it makes it so I can read a, a grid that I put together very quickly. And so can the people on our team. And so when you have everything in the same format every single time, written the same way you can tackle a significant amount of information because that's really what it is it's just it's just analyzing information uh succinctly and with a fair amount of detail fast and so part of a collaborative work effort has to do with 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 keeping the format of all this data that we're managing all the same nice so that's 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 a good amount of work now you got 2025 bands on the road how many concerts do you see on an average year? I probably see 100 to 150 concerts a year. <laughs> and you're touring a lot. You're going to different cities. You're enjoying new venues. You're on the road quite a bit. What do you love and what do you loathe about life on the road? Well... I'm on the road a lot less than I used to be, which is both a blessing and a curse. I used to tour manage quite a bit. Now I don't. And when you're tour managing and you're in a, hopefully you're in a tour bus, you're not in a van. There's a, there's a rhythm that you get into that. That's really nice. And, and it's, it's weird. I really miss sleeping on a tour bus sometimes hmm. because it's some of the best sleep I've ever gotten in my life. Hmm. Um, but I don't miss thinking about how much time I was spending literally on the road because I, I, I think that it's, it's one of the more dangerous things you can do. I'm really thankful that I, I don't need to do that anymore. But um, when I travel to a venue, it's, it's a cool lifestyle. I get to travel to a new city or a city that I've been to a hundred times, go to some of the most beautiful venues in the country and see some of the coolest bands on the planet. And I get to see it from a vantage point of creation. My team and I took an email and turned it into 
2000 people seeing their favorite band. So there's a fair amount of satisfaction once you see the actual thing happened because it is such a accumulation of labor and love that made this crazy thing that you're about to see happen from all across the world. People flew in to be the hospitality person. People flew in to be the lighting technician. People flew in to, to be the backline tech. People flew in to be the tour manager, the band wrote the songs, brings it to the audience and the audience took time out of their insanely hectic work week and came together to have an experience together in the real world. Yeah. And seeing that actually happen is tremendously satisfying. Being able to travel. I like a hotel. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fancy boy. <laughs> um, I like, I like a nice hotel. Yeah. I like, uh, you know, I like relaxing in a new space. If I can help it, I, you know, try to travel somewhat comfortably. I'm a big, like, airport lounge guy so if i can get into a good airport lounge there's like uh have you ever seen the movie up in the air yeah yeah so up in the air was like it was like nirvana for me watching that movie was great because watching george clooney talk about like slip on shoes in an airport so like i'm, I'm one of those freaks uh -huh. um traveling in a comfortable and efficient way is important to me yeah but once you actually touch down in the city check into hopefully a a nice marriott a Fairmount, if, if you're in Canada, I would highly suggest the Fairmount chain of hotels. And then you get to go to a venue and see the coolest thing ever happen. You know, so that that's really cool. I love it, buddy. You, you gave me goosebumps. <laughs> and, and you're the second guest in as many weeks who has mentioned their love of the Marriott. Yes. How about that? Max, I just got this idea, and I hope that you can countenance it, because you're a, you're a playful kind of fella, and I want to play a little game with you. You down? I'm down. Okay, it's going to be a rapid-fire game. I'm going to toss out a prompt, and I'm going to seek a rapid-fire response. You ready? Okay. Max Vick, best road trip food. Really depends where you are. Um, best road. I like beef jerky. I'm a beef jerky guy. I'm with you. Are you ready for another one? Yep. Do you want me to expound on on why I like beef jerky? Because there's reasons. I mean, I can't say no at this point. Max, expound <laughs> <laughs> expound on why you love beef jerky so much. So 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 beef jerky is perfect for a road trip because it's it is protein. It's not going to slow you down. It's tasty, especially in the Northeast, and especially if you get the right kind of beef jerky. Yeah. And if you can get some that doesn't really smell up your car, it's great. And it's also just there's so much junk on the road that you can really get into that it is a nice alternative to that. So protein fuels you up. Yeah. And there you go. Did you see the video that was unveiled last week of Nancy Pelosi on January 6th in the throes of the storming of the Capitol on a cell phone call with Mike Pence? In one hand, she's got like a I think it was like a flip phone. And then she opens a Slim Jim with her mouth and starts gnawing on the Slim Jim while she's talking to Mike Pence in the throes of all the chaos. Did you see this? Not surprised. <laughs> Didn't see it. Doesn't surprise me at all. Pelosi always struck you as a Slim Jim type. Okay, are you ready for the next one? I'm ready. Best band name? Cannibal Corpse. Mm -hmm. I like. Most generous venue? Just because... 
they're really putting it on for me right now. Uh, the factory in Deep Ellum, Texas. Got them Deep Ellum blues. Deep Ellum blues, yeah. Hidden Gem Hotel. Not a Marriott, a hidden gem. Yeah, the Fairmount Queen Elizabeth in Montreal, Canada. It's beautiful. Can we do one or two more? I'm having a lot of fun. Oh yeah, don't know. We can go as long as you want. I'm, 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 I'm all about it. We could keep. Let's keep it moving. We'll do one more. We'll do one more because this is actually one that I really, I was really curious about. Go, dude. We can do more than one. We can do more than one. I'm excited. Best cover song. I want to go Tennessee whiskey by Chris Stapleton, but that's it. Seems so. Uh, it seems so generic, but I, I, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Tennessee whiskey by Chris Stapleton. The, the original is quite good too. The original is a little bit hokey. Did I tell you that I am playing that song a whole bunch on the piano lately? And I did not know that it was a cover song at all until I was researching the song a little bit to try to dial in my own sound. And you didn't know that it was a David Allen Coe song. Yeah. Okay. One more for posterity. You're going to not answer this. Maybe you will. Let's see. If you could represent any one band or artist, who would it be? That's a fantastic question. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, that's a good one. How much do you think I'd have to pay to license the Jeopardy music for this little moment? No, it's, it's, there's, I can think of so many. It's the funniest part about this whole thing. Fucking, there's, there's so many different aspects of, 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 of the why. Yeah. But at this very moment, just this moment, this is not going on your tombstone. At this, in this one, here it is, here it is, here it is. All right. Because I'm a nice Jewish boy, at this very moment, I would like to be there. I'm going to give two answers, actually. But at this very moment, if I could represent anyone on the planet, it would be Adele. So I could get my mother into her Vegas residency with ease. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Maccabees. No. Adele. No, okay. Adele. But if it, <laughs> no, but I think I got two answers for this one, actually. If I could, if I could represent anyone throughout history history dead or alive it would be james brown yes it would be james brown without a doubt because i think it would be the coolest thing ever and i would want to represent him from the beginning of his career onward yeah he's a badass and a crazy person but also a total maverick in the way that he approached live music and he will never you know never get the credit that he's actually due for how hard he worked how many places he played and um Hardest working man in show business. That's what I'm saying. Even and even then, it doesn't even it doesn't even cover it. People don't really understand what that means. He he really yeah really did some cool things. And then Bruce Springsteen. I would I would love to work the boss. Yeah, he's he he would be amazing. I think the things that he he he's done uh, music level. I'm a huge fan, but also just his live show is incredible, and I'd love to do that. Yeah, but quite honestly. We have the privilege to work with a lot of really badass bands who are really paving the way to be the next generation of these things. And so pretty blessed to be able to work with them now. And it's uh, it's really great. All right, Max Vic. Well, you get on the good foot and sit tight, take hold, Thunder Road. You won the game. And I have more questions for you. Do you have time? I have time, yeah. You and I are both avid concert goers. We love it. What do you wish more concert goers knew about what goes into making a concert experience come to life? I wish more concert goers knew how many different 
points of detail goes into each and every second of the concert that they're seeing from when they hear about the tour and it comes into their mind to the moment that they are leaving and pulling their car out of the parking garage. It is a monumental effort and a gigantic infrastructure that allows the concert industry to happen. And it is powered by regular, normal people who are not rock stars, who are not famous. And they do so much work that is off the clock, not covered by insurance, backbreaking, mind bending, and completely badass. And the amount of people from different walks of life who come together to make it all happen should be identified and thanked every moment that you're at a concert. People who arrived at 6 a.m. to load in the lights, people that got there at 5 to work security, you know, the bus driver who's asleep when the band's playing, who's got to drive all night to get to the next show and gets there at 2 in the morning. Those people need to be recognized every single show and should be thanked every single show because without them, it doesn't happen. And, and the artist is, is, is the, 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 the mouthpiece and the head and the, and the thing that you visualize when you think about a show, but the people who work for them, who work for them and are part of that family are the ones who, uh, who deserve the fame, honestly. Thank you so much for that. Now, Max, you've been doing it, like you said, for 10, 12 years. You've been booking gigs. And I'm so grateful to have learned a bit about your path and, and what you've learned in the process. I wonder if you could share with me your vision for the next decade or two of your career. What does it look like to you? Leverage. What I would like for my career is to continue to work with the team that I'm with, but I just want more leverage so we can help our artists achieve whatever creative vision they have, I want them to take it to the logical conclusion. And I want to be able, when that artist comes to us and says, Hey, I want to do this crazy thing. I want to be able to go, yep, got it. Know how to do it. We can execute. We've got the power to do it. We have the ability to go to the promoters and say, we want to do this. Here's the shared vision. And they're going to be on board with us because they believe in us because we have the type of, power within the industry that we're the people they want to work with and we're the people they should work with and they got to work with. So being known as people who get things done and do it the right way, that's what I want. It's not necessarily more money. More money is always good. You know, money brings the ability to access the vision that our bands want. And so as they get more popular, they can you know, their brains can go wild in terms of the show they want to put on, in terms of the venues they want to play, in terms of how their careers go. And so in the next 10 years, I want to get more leverage. And um, yeah, and I want to get better at my job, be like as good as I possibly could be in terms of how I work with people, who I work with, and my ability to execute for the artists that we work with. That's awesome, Max. And Allow me to say in the most unabashed way that I have tremendous faith that you will actualize that vision. I'm super excited for you. And I'm really happy for you that you found 
a career that it's so clear that you truly love. That makes me really happy. And that should be enough. But I have to ask you to help me drive this train into the station. In order to do that, I hope you might share the stories of one professional triumph and one professional failure. And if I had it my way, you would start with a professional failure and end quite deservedly on a note of triumph. So <laughs> I'm going to go from a failure from when I was a tour manager because it was the worst day of my tour managing life, but it has informed everything I've ever done since. I was tour managing a black metal band. They had just landed in Boston. It was our first show of the tour. Traditionally, first shows are terrible. You got to set up everything. It's a stressful day. Nobody's having a good time. You haven't settled in at all. You're working with new people sometimes. Yeah. Not only did I not know enough that the band wanted to travel overnight to each show, which is what you do when you are in a bus, because I was still so green that I thought that we would just get there around five. Uh -huh. so that their security guy screamed at me as to why we were not at the venue yet and just sitting in a parking lot. But right before the band went on, the singer pulled me aside and said, hey, you need to make sure that the microphone stand that I get, center stage, center mic, is, is, is not a boom stand. It's a solid base stand. So mic stands come in either. It's like a tripod or it's got a solid base. He told this to me about an hour before the show or about during sound check. I can't really remember, but come showtime, he walks on stage and he sees his mic stand and on the PA live during their first song, he said, in his black metal voice, Max, we had a deal. Oh, no. <laughs> and he breaks the tripod oh. mic stand over his knee. <sighs> and that was how that day went for me. Yeah. Uh. And not only was I the rest of the day a mess, I felt like I was going to not make it out of that day. But... My, I have a very good friend from Chicago who told me that I've never been to a show that never ended. Mm. And so I've kept that. Just remember, it's, it's, just, it's just a day. That's it. But what it taught me was the little details matter quite a bit. And that stuff has really carried itself with me through everything that I do. Well, Max, like our dear mutual friend, Kermit the Frog said... It ain't easy being green. <laughs> but clearly you learned your lesson. It stays with you. You move on. Give me some triumph, baby. Triumph? I, I mean, I've got a show right now for a band that has never played New York City. It's on sale right now, and it's on, it's on track to selling out a thousand cap room. The singer of this band is the, is the leader and the manager of the band. And... When I first started booking the band, they told me that they would never play New York City because of some uh, unpleasant history in the market. And through working with them 
and building up the relationship and building up the trust between myself and the band, I was able to get them a better offer than they've gotten for any show they've ever had. And it will be the biggest headlining show they've ever played. And it will be in New York and it's in November. That was like my golden, my golden goose. You know, my white whale was the New York show for this band. And when we announced it, it sold like something like 600 tickets in the first day. And I've never seen the singer of the band happier. Yeah. And this is something that he was very, very hesitant about up until the announce. And now he's excited. He wants to go to New York. We're going to hang out there together. And I can't think of anything much better than that. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's big. Hell yeah. That's big. I love it. You gave me goosebumps. I'm happy for you, buddy. Hey, listen. Yeah. I got one more ask of you, all right? Can you recommend to our beloved listeners something that like somehow illustrates or influences your work? It could be anything, like a, a book, a song, a film, a poem, fucking animal sound, anything. Hmm. Right now, the thing that's driving me is a is an artist who I don't rep. Loud and clear. I love this dude named Zach Bryan. He's a amazing singer songwriter who is taking the country by storm, playing huge venues, growing at an unbelievable rate, and a lot of his songs just about working hard. And he's a he's kind of a country folk artist, but he's amazingly earnest and amazingly. Uh, real for someone who is achieving the popularity that he is achieving and uh he's getting me through a lot of my work days right now so uh zach bryan would be my uh my go-to suggestion right here max vick i will check out zach bryant and i just gotta tell you it has been such an unmitigated joy to reconnect with you to learn about your work to get a little bit of the inside scoop about this thing that i love so much I love going to concerts. The pandemic's been hard for all sorts of reasons, not least of which is that the concert scene has been compromised. But I love it. And hearing you talk about it and getting to learn more and more about it from you has been such a pleasure. So thank you, Max Vick, for being on For a Living. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, kids, that was me and Max Vick. It was a pleasure to be in conversation with him. I learned a ton. And dude definitely wet my whistle to get out there and see more live music. He also got me listening to that Zach Bryan guy. And hey, let me second his endorsement. I dig me some Zach Bryan. Not quite sure if dude's coming to Berlin anytime soon, but I definitely go check out a Zach Bryan concert. I'm not going to be seeing any concerts anytime soon because uh, I got COVID. <laughs> Went to Spain with the wife and kid, had the time of our lives, jumped in the water, climbed through the mountains of Catalonia, got back home, tested positive. What you going to do? It's 2022. We're all just trying to make it. But if you were wondering about the voice, wonder no longer. It's just COVID, baby. All the cool kids are getting it. <laughs> and apparently I am too. Oh, what the hell? What are you going to do? 
you can do this. Look, if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to do your part to share these conversations with real working people, do me a favor. Just take a second and think about your favorite episode. Maybe just think about the Max Vick conversation. Maybe it's the conversation a couple weeks ago with Max Vick's classmate, Mike Winnick, the EA sports commentator. Whichever one of these conversations resonates with you, here's what I want you to do. Two things. First, think about a person in your life who might share that interest. Copy the link and then send it over to that person. And second, and this one's kind of important. I'm always a little allergic to asking people to do this. But the more I read, the more I can't escape the conclusion that this could just help. Whether you're listening to this podcast on Google Podcasts or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever podcast player you use, rate the podcast. Leave a little comment. It's an easy way to help out the project. It takes you 20 seconds, and it helps me. <laughs> and yo, I need all the help I can get. Did I mention I have COVID? I did. I got COVID. I'm fine. I should say, I'm totally fine. It's the second time I've had it. And in case you're getting it all up in your head, yeah, I've been vaccinated. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. And I got it. And I'm okay. Mystifyingly, my partner and my kid don't have it. We live in the same small apartment in Berlin. We flew together on an airplane. We spent every waking moment together in Barcelona. I get COVID, they don't. WTF, y'all. Hey, whatever. I would rather it be me than either of them. The only downside is y'all gotta listen to this voice. Nasty. Not any longer. I'm out. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know who's on the podcast in two weeks from today, but I guarantee you there will be somebody on the podcast. So come back then. It'll be a surprise guest. You'll love it. Whoever it is, you'll love it. I got ideas. I'm not totally clueless about who's going to be on the podcast. But uh, I got some work to do. You got some work to do. Hey, go do some work. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Take care, kids. Did it. So now all I got to do is uh, get your girlfriend on the podcast. Yeah. Now, yeah. now I, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, but she's <laughs> working for no broke. Broke. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, girl. Go ahead. Get down. She's actually a gold digger, right? <laughs> she, she, she's, she, she, she works, she works in gold right now. She used to work in diamonds. She's an engineer. What She's a reliability specialist, so she's uh, she works on in heavy machinery, making sure that it's all up to snuff in terms of its uh, its safety, and um, she'd be able to describe it a lot better than I could. I fucking hope so. Essentially, she, she, yeah, she's a machine doctor, so that's what I would say. She's a heavy machinery doctor. Get down, girl. Go on, <laughs> hey, get down. Get down, girl. In a gold mine. In a gold mine. Yeah, at the top of the world, in the Yukon. Yeah. Yeah, I might try to suck her on to this here thing. You know, she's got a much cooler job than I do. So, uh, Not to me, man. I don't give a fuck about gold. I care about concerts. <laughs> I trade all the gold in the world just to see a couple bands again.